Hi, and welcome to episode number 22 of the Crypto Chick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the Crypto Chick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Bruce Fenton, CEO of Chainstone Labs. This interview was actually recorded live during Bruce's Satoshi side table event that took place last week. During my fireside chat with Bruce, he explores the topic of what makes an ideal jurisdiction for the crypto space. Coming from a securities background, Bruce offers a unique perspective. He also shares his thoughts on the new U.S. cryptocurrency tax laws and gives his opinion on the current price of Bitcoin and recent legislations that have passed in Bermuda. Without further ado, let's get right to my interview with Bruce. Enjoy! Bruce, thank you so much for having all of us here. It's been a really wonderful uh, side table conference. So first of all, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so let's just jump right on into the questions. Let's talk about jurisdictions because that's obviously a hot topic right now. Um, So in your opinion, what is the ideal jurisdiction? That's an interesting question. My first gut reaction is to say no jurisdiction if you're just to have total freedom, have people be able to do anything they want. I think that it's, it's very interesting and I've mentioned this before, coming from kind of a minarchist, libertarian, very free market focused background, my first reaction and usually consistent reaction is to have as little involvement as possible. But I do have an interesting lens in that I've, I also come from the securities business and I was in the securities business my whole life. And I, part of good economics and good free market economics is respecting personal property rights. And interestingly, a lot of the securities rules do relate to personal property rights. When you own equity in a business, you need to know that you really own it and that you have some rights. And we take these these laws for granted. There's a lot of issues with the laws. There's a lot of things in the United States, for example, that could be improved upon, say, securities laws and banking is even worse. But there are some things that are actually good that have been that do respect personal property and should even for somebody from a very libertarian free market oriented uh, philosophy should appeal to them just like the fact that if you own apple stock nobody ever really worries about apple stealing the stock from them why well because that's just never really happens you just don't have that issue in all my years 28 years now in financial services, I've never really even heard of an issuer, especially a large issuer like a publicly traded company, stealing shares. Uh, Fraud is fairly rare. uh, And there's other issues that happen. But a a company just stealing shares, it just never happens. I mean, you've never met anybody who said, oh, man, I had Microsoft since the IPO and I thought I had millions and then Bill Gates took it. It just doesn't happen. So there and that and the reason it doesn't happen is because you have these laws that have been in place so long that people kind of forget that you know that they're there. But they, but at, at its core, some of these laws are pretty good to, to protect shareholders. I'm very big on shareholder protection and some of these things. So I think that the ideal jurisdiction would recognize some of these things. I think it's a legitimate role of government to enforce contracts, prevent fraud, prevent theft, robbery these kind of things. And other than that, let the free markets do as much as they can, especially with a fast moving technology like this area where rules that you create are going to be outdated. BitLicense was just created a few years back and it's already outdated because things change all the time. So allowing that flexibility 
to be able to uh, adapt and change as the markets change, I think is, is really key. So I would say have a really light touch, as little involvement as possible and let the free markets decide. And also don't try to protect people too, too much because it's not a matter of whether you'll fail or succeed. It's a matter of the unintended consequences that and drawbacks that you have when you create these kind of regulations. So sometimes people say, well, if, if we don't have the government to protect these people, people will lose money. And my reaction to that is, well, the government, it's not going to necessarily work. Bernie Madoff was head of the largest regulator. So it, it, it's <clears throat> you get a lot of drawbacks, but you don't necessarily have the advantage that people think. So I'd say, I would, I would summarize it by saying light touch that recognizes things like property rights and puts as much as possible in the hands of the private sector to self-regulate, which I think it's not perfect, but it's it's better than government trying to regulate. Right, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's a lot of talk right now in terms of taxes. I mean, there are these new tax laws that have just come out. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it seems like from yesterday's presentation, it's almost a lose-lose situation. Um, what do you think? The U.S. tax guidance that we just got recently is so bad that I can't really imagine it will be held up and I'm not an expert on exactly how these things unfold, it seems like there will be legal challenges or further clarification. At the very least, it seems like the IRS will come back and further clarify because it's just so bad. It just doesn't, it's not really workable. I would hope that there is ways to have, to bring legal actions and have the whole, you know, more of it thrown out. In an ideal situation, would have been really great if they just gave a five-year moratorium on taxes for anything crypto related. And, and the government theoretically would lose a little bit, but they'd probably gain a lot more. If I was government looking at it from that angle, I would look at it and say, well, you may you know, sort of lose something short term, but long term you're going to gain because you're fostering an industry. Overall, I'm not a big fan of taxes in general. I think that I do believe in the saying that taxation is theft. Uh, and it sounds radical to some people, but it really, you just base it on the dictionary definition of what theft is. Tax, taxation really is theft. And usually people answer that by saying, well, 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 what about roads and what about the military and what about the, the, the dictionary doesn't say it's only not theft if it goes to, if it's taken by a certain person or if it goes to something you like. Even if you agree and you say all of this stuff is great. I love what the government's doing, no matter who's in charge, it's all wonderful. It doesn't matter. Um, if I take your wallet and I take the money out and I put it to a really, really good cause, I go and save somebody's life. You can save somebody's life in Somalia for $5, and that's a pretty good use of money. But if I steal uh, $500 out of your wallet and I save 100 lives, you could make an argument that I'm doing a moral thing, but I, it's still theft. It's still theft. You can So, so it's two different issues. And I, I think that it's theft. So I, I would be in favor of cutting taxes as much as possible and having as, as much flexibility as possible. And then there's the logistic side of it when you say these things, you know, again, even if you agreed, because I'm not going to be able to single-handedly convince the government to abandon all taxes, that would be fairly ambitious. But uh, you could say, okay, even if, even if you say this is the way you're going to do it, you have to have laws that make sense. And the, the current laws don't necessarily make a lot of sense. Right. Well, I guess, and they were updated after five years. So hopefully, you know, we'll see some changes soon. I don't know how long these are actually going to be implemented. Yeah, hopefully. And and I like when people challenge things and you get more clarification through advocacy rather than 
There's two ways to get clarification. And I think one mistake that our industry has done in general with regulators is asking for clarity. Because if you go to, there's two kinds of regulators. There's a small percentage who really care about the people and they want to protect consumers. Those you don't have to worry about. But there is another group, and even the biggest fans of government will admit that there are some people in government who don't have your best interests at heart. They have their own best interests at heart. They're, believe it or not, this may shock you, but there are some people in government who are there because they want to get more power. They want to run for governor. They want to run for president. They want to expand the size of their bureaucracies. And so they don't, they, they don't have your best interests at heart. They, when you ask for clarity, they're never going to say, uh, okay, our clarity is, boy, we shouldn't even be involved with this. And, and you could do an experiment. You could, go to, you could go to government agencies and say, hey, am I allowed to watch movies at 11 p.m.? And just write to every, every regulator. And you know what? They, they, somebody's going to write back and try and figure out a way to, to say, well, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're going to try and figure out a way. Very, you know, a smaller percentage would just say, well, yeah, of course you can write, watch movies at 11 p.m. That's none of our business. But there are some percentage, uh, and you may disagree about what percentage that is, but there's some percentage of government people where no matter what you ask them, you know, can I eat strawberries on my Cheerios? They're going to they're gonna figure out a way to say, well, how can I answer this in a way that will further my power? How can I, they're asking for this clarity. How can I figure out a way to further my power? So one way to, to get clarity is by asking, and that can have that drawback because they don't always have your best interest at heart. The other way to get clarity is through more advocacy, especially legal challenges. I'd like to see more advocacy groups in our industry who, who have a more confrontational attitude. We, we did a few different things with the Bitcoin Foundation and other ones. Uh, the city of Plattsburgh, New York, for example, made a rule. They had a big miner in town because they have low power, cheap power because of this whole big government scam thing that they had going with this power company. But because of that, they had cheap power. And so a large couple Bitcoin miners were setting up in town. Plattsburgh didn't like it because they're government and they just didn't think it was right. So they passed a rule that said um, you you can't be a commercial miner in town. And they said, um, what is the definition of a commercial miner? It's three or more miners. So I wrote a letter to the mayor and I said, okay, I'm coming to Plattsburgh. I'm staying at the Motel 6 and I have three miners with me. I'm a commercial miner. They're in my pocket in my Raspberry Pi. I have one for Bitcoin one for Ravencoin, and one for Brucecoin, which is a set of my poems that runs on my own blockchain. And I'm mining these three things. And are you going to arrest me under your rule? I demand to be prosecuted under your rule as a commercial miner, because I, by your definition, I'm carrying around these three miners in my solar-powered backpack. I'm not using your power grid. Am I allowed to do this? And they didn't respond. <laughs> But I'd like to see more of that kind of attitude. If I had the time and interest, and I don't like poking the bear too much. You know, I'm, I'm a big tough talker when it comes to Plattsburgh. You won't see me sending a letter like that to the FBI, for example. <laughs> I'm not too afraid of Plattsburgh. <laughs> but I'd like to see an advocacy group with some real teeth whenever these goofy things come out where they say, all right, bring it. Because the great thing about America is that you can go in front of judges there's the old right and wrong matter, and there's a thing called the Constitution. And we have things like freedom of speech. 
So I'd really like to see, I don't care if it's Plattsburgh or anybody else, I want to see somebody say, no, you're not allowed to carry your own self-contained solar-powered Raspberry Pi with your own poems on it. That's not going to hold up. And pretty much any judge, the nice thing about judges is that they, they do generally have a pretty good respect for these kind of things. You have good and bad judges, but most of them are not out there trying to further their own career. They may want to be a bigger, more important judge, but a lot of times they do that by good, good judicial decisions. And uh, so I'd like to see more advocacy along those lines. Because once you challenge something like that, if they throw that out, it'd be great. And, and, and then, you have a, a, then you have something, you have precedent in the state of New York that says, hey, this was thrown out. It's not the government's place to go. Because the, the, the flip side works. The reason that, it's, that something like Plattsburgh is a threat is because you say, well, wait a minute. Is the government allowed to tell you what software you're allowed to run on your own computer? I think the Bitcoin code is just as beautiful as Shakespeare, and it's words that are written by people. Some of them are my friends. Don't I have the right to read that just like I have a right to read Shakespeare? Don't I have the right to publish that just like I have a right to publish Shakespeare? If I made that argument to a judge, I think most judges are going to see the, the reason behind that, and they have to go with the Constitution and say, yeah, that's, that's free speech. Code has already been determined to be speech. There's cases on that. So I'd like to see that kind of advocacy more often where people really – uh, you know, fight back. And, and may, they may or may not win, but at least it keeps the regulators from, from saying, oh, you know, maybe we can't walk all over these people because we might embarrass ourselves in court. Right, yeah, good points. Um, let's talk a little bit about Bermuda because they seem to have some pretty good jurisdiction in place. And I know that you've spent some time in Bermuda. And uh, a few days ago, they recently announced that USDC stablecoin could be used to pay taxes, which is, I think, a really great innovation. And uh, they also have something called the Digital Business, the Digital Assets Business Act, which was implemented last year, I believe. Um, so I've covered both of these topics. So I just want to know what your thoughts are on Bermuda and these innovations that they have going there. Sure. I'm on the Premier's Council for FinTech and Premier David Burt uh, from, from Bermuda, Premier of Bermuda, is, is probably one of the most progressive uh, leaders and political figures that I've met anywhere in the world in terms of this kind of technology. He's very forward-thinking, very accessible, very technology-friendly. He gets this technology, he cares about it, and he really wants to make his country uh, friendly to this technology. And they have a good track record in Bermuda of welcoming industries. They did very well with the insurance industry going back from the 80s and before where they created laws that were very welcoming, but also having a pretty good reputation internationally. One, one tr challenge with these jurisdictions, if you do what I said originally when you asked about uh, the ideal jurisdiction, if you have too little regulation, it may be very friendly in your own country, but then other countries won't work with you, particularly the United States. If you, if you just say, hey, anything goes, come on in, anybody can have any, any kind of business they want, uh, you may attract some business, but you're also going to attract some bad business, and, and you, you can be shut off from the rest of the world. You could have the United States and other major jurisdictions say, yeah, sure, you're, you're a sovereign country, you can do whatever you want, but you know, we're not going to allow our people to work with you, or we're not going to recognize you, or, or in extreme cases... You know, some jurisdictions, they don't even let you travel. They don't let you have visas and that kind of thing. So Bermuda is in a good position because they're, they're uh, you know, considered by the global community to be a legit destination that isn't 
focused on uh, you know crime and that kind of thing because they have a long-standing you know they're they're British uh, protectorate and they have a long-standing legal system that respects property rights and they you know they they you know fairly strict banking rules and things like that that prevent uh, some of the bad actors so they should be able to work well they have a tax treaty with the United States they should be able to work well with some of these bigger jurisdictions and that's one thing that the premier and and Dennis and other members of his team are trying to do which is uh, make it so that it is a regulatory sandbox where they can show other jurisdictions to say yes this works so this first step with this with this digital assets uh, rule called DABA was to recognize not just the the uh, it's actually any stable coin that's one to one back so any stable coin that is one to one backed with the US dollar they'll recognize and accept it for taxes I think that's an important step to me the most important piece is that it shows that the government is progressive and thinking about these kind of technologies it's uh, a first step in many ways because you have this you know, big system of, of existing regulatory apparatus. They have their own monetary authority, their own stock exchange authority, and these kind of things. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a key step. And one thing I like about the stable coins and U.S. dollar coins is that they're on a great, they're, they're a great on-ramp for, for Bitcoin and other digital assets. The more that you have people trading their money in these instruments that can trade and move around the world easily, the more that they'll be able to move into Bitcoin and move into other digital assets. And that's the ultimate goal is to have everything tokenized, everybody having their assets in liquid, movable instruments, digital assets that can move all over the world. And, uh, and the more they do that, the more they're going to start asking, well, okay, it's very easy for me to move to other forms of money. What's the best form of money? And in a perfect world, they'll recognize the strengths of Bitcoin that could strengthen Bitcoin. And it can also make it easier for people to trade in things like securities and, and stuff like that. So in, I think it'd be wonderful if in five years you have this wide variety of digital assets that people are trading and, and they're able to move their money all around globally in different currencies. And this is a great first step for that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, stable coins are really hot topic right now, I think. And I know with Bermuda, I, you know, they support that being backed by the U.S. dollar. Um, so I think that was also one of the main points there with, you know, accepting USDC. Um, so yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I kind of want to go back to yesterday's session and ask you a question. You said that the trillion dollar question yesterday, or in probably it still is today <laughs> and will be for a while, but you mentioned that, um, how to make stocks move like a Monero token. Can you kind of just, I don't know if everybody was here yesterday, that was the trillion dollar question. So can you kind of just touch on that again? Sure. So right now in, in five minutes, we could create a legal security, uh, legal and, and legally offer it. It's actually, there's two things about a security in the United States. Creating a security legally is pretty easy. Offering it is quite a bit harder, but it's still pretty easy if you follow certain rules. The, the more you want to do, the more you want to solicit, the more money you want to, the harder it becomes. And eventually it becomes very, very hard. You want to raise over 50 million, you have to be fully uh, listed and, and, or fully uh, registered. So that, that's very hard. It could be a million dollars in legal work. But a security just means any instrument that falls under the definition in the 33 Act, so it's stock, bond, debenture, evidence of indebtedness, and on and on and on, it's five paragraphs. And uh, included in that is investment contract, which is 
all these Howie decisions spin off from that. But let's just take it in a simple way, stock or bond. Those are two of the most common kinds of security. A stock just means it's a piece of a business. So all businesses are, are some, some form of stock, uh, and, and especially if it's not a sole proprietorship, that, that's a stock. So any C-Corp, if you've ever created a corporation, which is pretty much everybody has had something, you could have a, a $1,000 business. I, mean, I you know I created a counterparty token for a, not a fictitious, I suppose it's a real hot dog stand. It just has never had any assets or never done any business. Bruce's hot dog stand is pretty, probably a big failure of a business. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'll have to get the hot dog cart one of these days, but you can create, so we could create that business right now and we can create a token for it right now on our phone and creating a digital asset is pretty easy. Now, if we want to go and start selling that, I did that under a specific, I forget the name of the exemption. It's so little used because I chose basically the most useless exemption. It's one that you basically can't, I couldn't solicit anybody or anything else. But if I wanted to solicit, then I would go under something like, you know, the easiest one is red crowdfunding, but that has some restrictions. It has to be done through a portal. You're limited to $1,070,000 and so on. But it's it's still pretty easy. We could, that wouldn't be five minutes. It might be, if we wanted to do it right, it might be a couple hours. We'd want to get, probably get some lawyer or something, but it's still fairly easy. But the point is we can create it in this room. We could create a legal security. We could even offer it in a, in a limited way. Again, be careful with this. Don't, don't, go doing this, and especially don't go asking for money uh, from anybody unless you have a lawyer, uh, you're, giving, you're getting legal advice and you're making sure that you're either fully registered or one, under one of the exemptions. My hot dog stand example was mainly for example purposes. And the, the fact that I didn't raise any money helps a lot. If you don't raise money, and, and when you're talking about tokens, if you don't raise money and also don't have a pre-mine and also don't have an airdrop, that um, makes it much, much harder to be considered a security. You still could be if it's considered a common enterprise and you're doing a few other things. You, you, even in those cases, you're not necessarily off the hook. Um, but, but anyway, the, the point is that technically and even legally, we could create a security pretty easily. The challenge is in, is in that, last, uh, that last mile saying like, okay, well, now we can create it. Does it work? Is it good? Do we, it would be a bearer asset. There's some legal issues with bearer assets that Dave mentioned yesterday. Uh, but even if you can get around those, do you really want to have a bearer asset? I, I kind of, I love Bitcoin, but I'm kind of scared of bearer assets, particularly coming from the lens of, of an investment advisor. I've had uh, clients that are DECA billionaires and I've handled, I, I, I did a $2.5 billion transaction one time. And if you think I'm going to put even one tenth of that on a Trezor, you, you got another thing coming. You know, there, there's just no way in a million years that I'm going to put any kind of risk, even over $100,000, uh, which is trivial for an investment advisor. Even a tiny investment advisor in a small town can easily have transactions that are in the tens of millions of range. And I've had uh, times where I've had uh, potential exposure with with wallets or something like that in the early days where where there was you know money that it's not a safety kind of thing you know just like we forgot about the importance of some of these securities laws because they're so old a lot of us have forgotten about why you have custodians you have custodians that the reason is because it you don't want to be in a position where people can put a gun in your face and get a lot of money and uh, there's 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 
hundreds and hundreds of people right in this town that are millionaires. That pretty much any any uh, no, normal town, not even an affluent town, just a normal town, or, or especially a city. I mean, in New York, there's hundreds of billionaires. And I used to work with, you, if you know my background, I used to work with one of the largest private equity firms, and they have a lot of partners that are billionaires and, and clients that are deca-billionaires and a lot of partners that make tens of millions of dollars a year, but they generally don't really worry about theft. Crypto people who have a fraction of that are much more worried. Crypto people are very cautious about their identity and things like that. And if crypto becomes more mainstream, that becomes, you know, that becomes an issue. So I think you got to look at these these kind of uh, these kind of custodial issues. I got a little bit off track with with, with your your question there, but I think I think looking at these kind of broad issues, you you, you do have some real risk with that. Uh, and there's some challenges with bearer assets. And then there's also issues of, you know, how do you communicate with shareholders and everything? But long story short, the technology is there. The regulations are certainly not perfect and could be improved, but it is doable. The last mile is how do you uh, make it so that these assets can have the data that you need without clogging the system and going back to having a trusted ledger? Uh, we can solve some of these things by just saying, okay, well, we'll just track where the token goes on a spreadsheet and you let the issuer know where it moves. And that, that actually is okay, it works, but then you don't really need a token for it and you're not really, dis, dis, you're not really get, getting rid of the need for that trusted third party. So um, I, I, I think there will be technical solutions. There's already some, as Tron and other people have talked about, and this is being done parallel, just like any great technology. You have Ethereum folks working on it, Blockstream's Liquid, uh, RSK, Ravencoin, XRP, EOS, and I know some people like or don't like these chains. There's ADA, there's Polymath, and their new project Polymesh. Everybody's kind of working at these things from a different angle, and I'm, I'm actually excited about that. I believe in all, all tides, you know, uh, rising tide lifts all boats, and I'd like to see, hopefully, each of these projects will come, come up with something that the other ones can use. And I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it, but but there is some non-trivial issues to solve to really make this, uh, you know, although we can issue it, and we've been able to issue a token in five minutes for quite a while. I mean, you can issue a counterparty token a long time ago. I did the hot dog stand example probably a year and a half ago, uh, and I could have just as easily done it for a $50 million business. The only difference is that I would have needed to spend a lot more money on lawyers and have a real offering and everything. But the technology has existed. It's that last mile of making it so that it actually works and doesn't get bogged down by going back into a centralized database with the old system. So if we have some kind of metadata and combination of wallet level stuff and different second layer tools on different chains, and every chain is different. There's a lot of ways to, to solve this problem or try to solve this problem and maybe it's a combination of different things but if, if through you know one or more of these methods we can make it so that these issues are solved that you can move your move your stock kind of like you can move your monero uh you know that is the trillion dollar solution we're looking for right yeah well hopefully we'll see innovation soon um okay so this is my last question um and i'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on this it's about bitcoin and about Bitcoin's price today, which dropped below 8,000. Um, so Coindesk reported today that Bitcoin may be nearing a looming death cross, which is a long-term bear market indicator. So what are your thoughts on that? And when do you, yeah, any predictions if you have, that would be great too. I wish I had predictions. And I wish they could be right. I, I think that Bitcoin is, has got the best chance of being global money. 
It's the strongest, largest chain. It's got the most development behind it. It has a lot of really serious people. The good news is that, well, I could do the bad news first and then you know, finish with the good news. The bad news is, I think in this industry and in any industry, it makes sense to think adversarially. You want to think, um, Jesse Powell from Kraken wrote a great piece maybe a year ago or so saying, assume that an attacker has already hacked you or is, or is actively working on hacking you and they're going to get you in 24 hours. What do you do? That's a great way to think of OPSEC. You want to think, what is the worst case scenario? And if you think the worst case scenario is, you know, $100,000 a Bitcoin moon Lambo, well, that's not adversarial thinking. You need, you need to think in terms of OPSEC. And the best developers and some of the best people in the space I know think about this. It's humorous to me when I mention these things and people think of it as either I don't understand Bitcoin or don't know Bitcoin or don't get it or I'm being negative on Bitcoin. So anytime I say anything that's for sort of adversarial thinking, I get a lot of uh, usually new people who are kind of attacking and say, oh, you don't get it. Bitcoin can never be stopped. It's like, well, you, you don't want to think like that. Even if you think it's a very, very small percentage chance, it doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if, if, you're, if it's the best technology. History is littered with examples of superior technology failing. There are all kinds of things that, that can happen. You may be right, but the markets may disagree with you. You can't bet that the whole world is going to agree with you. So I like to think, I, I don't like to, I dislike it, but I, as an exercise, almost every day, I think adversarial. I think, what, what if I'm wrong? What if we're all wrong? What if this doesn't make sense? And what would that look like? So I've done a lot of research on different bubbles and different crashes and different scenarios where things fall apart. And it is possible. It certainly is possible. We, we, we don't know that the world is going to b believe in this. Bitcoin depends on people believing and caring that it's better money. A lot of people don't care if something's better money, which is crazy. Just like they don't, you know, don't get me started on politics, but people do irrational things. People don't always go to the best. You can, you can go into any grocery store or, or pharmacy and see all kinds of products that just don't work, that are bad for you, people still buy them. And you could, I, when, I, when I was active as, more active as a financial planner and investment advisor, uh, I was always intrigued by, I would do a search by 10-year performance uh, from, a, from a descending. So, so what is the worst instruments that have the, the worst 10-year performance? And there's funds out there that have underperformed other funds over one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 15 year. It's consistently the bottom 10%, yet some of them still have hundreds of millions of dollars. So you say, well, why is that? It's completely irrational. There's, a, there's irrationality and we can't, we can't depend on this. There is a chance that you can go through a death spiral and you can have just lack of interest leads to uh, apathy. Apathy is the biggest threat to Bitcoin. The honey badger is very, very difficult to kill. But you, if people stop caring, then that matters. Uh, the, so, so, so those are the adversarial things you, you, you would look at. And you could think of it, if you look at some of the great bubbles in, in history, you do have a chart that looks kind of like the Bitcoin chart now, where it goes up, way up, goes down, kind of has a sucker's rally, and then, and then, and then uh, tapers off and... and uh, even if the industry survives, it still kind of ne almost never returns to its glory days.
So, so that that is possible. You could have you could have Bitcoin settle back in at, at two or three thousand and just stay like that for for a long, long time, or it could just completely crash down and go on to a cycle where the the value becomes very, very little. Uh, the the flip side of that is that Bitcoin has had a similar chart like that a few times in the past. It looked just like that in two thousand fourteen, and uh, and and it, it, the 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 benefit is that you have it being the largest, strongest chain. You have a great deal of development talent behind it that's growing and there's more and more people that care about this and so the apathy is combated by people that care the level of sophistication about people talking about things like why limited supply matters that was really really hard to explain to people six years ago to to say why why is a limited supply better than the fed who can just continually print money and that goes without saying now. If you were to issue a new coin, if you were to create a fork of Bitcoin and say, yeah, it's just like Bitcoin, only instead of 21 million coins, it's going to issue a new extra million coins to the developers uh, every year. That, that, wouldn't, that would be laughable. You'd be called a scam. No, you wouldn't get any traction on that. You wouldn't, you, it just would not fly. And the reason it wouldn't fly is because people are a lot more educated than they were five, six years ago. And this space has brought in a lot of really intelligent people. And I'm continually impressed. I went up to the Cumberland Summit in, in Toronto. Whole bunch of people sort of relatively new to the industry. A lot of the, you know, maybe 80% of the room has only been in the industry a, a couple, you know, two or three years. But these are some really, really serious people. And there's a lot of serious people, smart people, well-educated people from, from solid backgrounds who care about this. And they jump in and then they... You know, a few years later, they were very, very knowledgeable about this, and they're talking about these principles and talking about why this is better money. So the bullish side of it is that I think that digital assets make sense. I think it makes sense for the stock market. I think that stable coins are here to stay, and all of that makes sense. And you're going to have this blockchain technology being used, and that will inevitably lead to more people using it and trading it and going back and forth. And they'll ask questions like, "What is good money? And what what makes money money?" And why is a limited supply and fungibility and, and, and acceptance and durability and these other properties of money uh, important? And that, that is bullish for Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm always cautious. And also the other thing is as a financial advisor for so long, I'm very cautious about in all these years, I've very rarely recommended Bitcoin. And, and every time I've done it, I've uh, not, not because I'm under some legal requirement to do it, but usually just because it's prudent to be very cautious about these things. You, the world is a very, very complex place and you don't know how things will work. So I do always recommend caution and I recommend against trying to uh, get rich quick. If, you th if you're in Bitcoin because you're hoping for a 10x, that's you know not great financial advice. And it's not a great strategy, especially if you put more than you can afford to lose in it. It still is a risky and speculative asset. But I, you know, overall, I believe in it, certainly. And I think that you know, Bitcoin has other uses than money even. I mean, just the fact that the chain is very strong is good. And there's a lot of these other related technologies that are um, you know, sort of this, this rising tide lifting all boats kind of thing. And, and uh, we may go through ups and downs, but uh, you know, long term, I'm definitely bullish on the industry. There's a lot of people that are very serious in this industry that have gotten in and doing innovative things that are solving real problems, particularly with with things related to trusted third parties and securities and that kind of thing. So overall, I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but I I think that um, you don't want to 
be in for the wrong reasons. You want to look at the real technology, real solutions, real companies that are making real money, not trying to get rich quick and think about it from the big picture economic standpoint. So that that's what I'm most excited about. I, I, I always use caution. I don't pay too, too much attention to these daily moves, but they do matter. Uh, but I may pay more attention to the number of people and developers and these other metrics that are coming on. And from those standpoints, there's a lot of builders, there's a lot of new people still coming in. And that is, uh, is, is pretty interesting from, for the long term. So I'm optimistic. Right, well, that's great. And, and I am also, and you know, you mentioned a good point. Uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is, you know, can be used more for just money, like enterprise blockchain, which I'm writing a book on now. Um, in Bitfury, for instance, they're doing something really interesting with uh, Exxon, and that's their enterprise blockchain uh, platform. And they're actually um, doing something with the Bitcoin blockchain with um, time stamping. So anyway, it's just another good use case of, of what the Bitcoin blockchain is uh, can be used for. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. This is great. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Bruce Fenton and his current projects. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks so much for listening. See you all next time.